Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Chris Smith and Helen Scales, and Sarah Custer Perry will be taking us back to this week in science history. Coming up, how nanoscale data storage could last virtually forever. They worked out how long it would take, by chance, for this nanoparticle to accidentally jump from where it should be in the tube to the other end, a distance of about 200 nanometers, and what they find is that it would take 10 to the 17 seconds for that to happen by chance. In other words, one followed by 17 zeros. That's a billion years. And how the shape of your brain could determine how sociable you are. The greater concentration of tissues in certain parts of the brain, the more likely someone is to be highly sociable. Now, earlier studies have linked the same parts of the brain to the parts that process simple rewards like uh, sweet, sugary tastes and sex. Plus, Dr Leah Piter joins us to explain the biological link between cancer and depression. And Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to 1919 and the solar eclipse that proved Einstein's theory of general relativity correct. That's all on the way. Now, increasingly in the modern world, we're trusting, and perhaps not necessarily in a very uh, ideal way, digital technology to store our treasured memories. We're using things like photographs, we're using things like videos, we're using things like audio, and instead of putting them in photo albums, we're putting them on disk drives and relying on those things to store this data degradation-free for as long as we might want it. But here's the reality. Despite the fact that the Doomsday Book, which was written 900-plus years ago and remains readable today, when the BBC recommissioned the Doomsday Project in 19, uh, 900 years later to celebrate the 900th anniversary, they put a snapshot of life in the UK on two massive laser discs, which they distributed to schools and things. And those laser discs have recently had to be updated and the data on them put onto new media because the disks are degraded and we couldn't rely on the information on them anymore. So in other words, modern ways of storing information aren't to be trusted. So how can we get around the problem? Well, a group of researchers who are at the University of California at Berkeley, this is Alex Zettel and his colleagues, they've got a paper in this week's edition of Nano Letters, and what they propose is a nanotechnological answer to the problem. They make nanotubes, these are tiny molecular straws made of carbon atoms, which are many orders of magnitude smaller than a human hair, and inside those tubes they put something called an iron nanoparticle. And what they can do is to, by applying a current to the outside of the nanotube, they can make this tiny iron nanoparticle fly from one end of the tube and lodge at the other end and go back again. So wherever they want it, they can put it by just putting a voltage into the tube. And this means you've got a binary storage system. It can either be naught if the nanoparticle is at one end of the tube or a one if it's at the other end of the tube. So that's a way of storing the information. How can you read it off? Well, it's very simple. You can measure the resistance of the nanotube because what they've found is that when the particle's at one end of the tube, the tube has a different resistance to when the, the nanoparticle is at the other end of the tube. So... Why does this solve our major problem? Well, it does two things. One is that they say, because these particles are so tiny, they can store one terabyte, one terabit, sorry, of data per square inch, which is about ten times the data density of present storage techniques. And secondly, they worked out how long it would take, by chance, for this nanoparticle to accidentally jump from where it should be in the tube to the other end, a distance of about 200 nanometers, and what they find is that it would take... 10 to the 17 seconds for that to happen by chance. In other words, one followed by 17 zeros. That's a billion years. 
if you should want to keep your photos for that long, you can trust this method to keep this, the data safe. Sounds like the perfect way of making time capsules and perhaps we should send them off into space or bury them in our garden to make sure that everyone in the future, whatever comes along, knows what we are up to. Anyway, from the latest in uh, 21st century technology to the stuff of fairy tales or maybe for some people nightmares, the Komodo dragons, which I think are the closest living things that we really have to real man-eating dragons at three metres long. These lizards that live on the Indonesian island of Komodo are fearsome enough, but now scientists have discovered that they have a toxic bite. Until now, it was thought that the key to their deadly bite was bacteria in their saliva. They bite their prey, leave it to wander around while the nasty bugs in their saliva infect um, that poor beast and so they eventually go into shock and the dragon comes back to kill and eat their victim, which sounds all rather lovely. But now it seems um, because Stephen Rowe from the University of New South Wales in Australia and his colleagues went out and discovered that, in fact, Komodos do have a toxic bite. They've published in the journal PNAS this week and they've discovered venom glands, including a dose of anticoagulant toxin that the Komodo dragons use to um, cause their victims to essentially bleed to death, which is, again, rather lovely. Anyway, the first time the, the team first used uh, computer models to analyse the skull of a Komodo dragon, and they found that actually they've got a very weak bite compared to a crocodile of about the same size. They really don't have much power at all in the down bite. Perhaps they're actually more adapted to, to holding on to a struggling prey and stopping from wriggling away. They then um, looked at the preserved head of a Komodo dragon and they put it into an MRI scanner, had a look what was going on inside, and they discovered a set of complex venom glands in its jaw and ducts coming out into their teeth. So that gave them the first clue that these guys really are toxic. They then got some of these uh, these venom glands out of a Komodo dragon. No healthy Komodo dragons were actually harmed in this study. This was in fact um, a Komodo dragon in a zoo that was going to die anyway. It was terminally ill. And they took out, the, they dissected out the glands and they used mass spectrometry to look at the chemistry of that venom. And they discovered that it's made up of a complex mix of proteins. And it's a similar, really lethal cocktail compared to other venomous reptiles that also use similar sorts of toxins. And uh, it's this kind of toxin that seems to cause... Uh, it causes the victim to bleed copiously, which, which fits in because humans, who unfortunately occasionally get bitten by Komodo dragons, continue to bleed for a long time. They know after, after they've been bitten. Um, so really it seems that, uh, yes, these Komodo dragons are toxic... And and they aren't the only ones. There's another guy that, that this pub, uh, paper also covered, which is the Megalania, um, a 40,000-year-old cousin of the Komodo dragon, which was even more scary and enormous. They grew to two tonnes, seven-metre giants. They aren't around now, so don't worry. But we think they were also toxic as well because they have, um, looking at uh, fossils, their teeth also had these ducts. So maybe this, this toxicness of uh, these huge lizards goes back a long way indeed. And if that's the case, does that mean then that all of the other... Uh, ancestors, successors rather, of those particular species, other lizards around today, do they also have these kinds of, of toxins in that's, their venoms? That's right. In fact, up until fairly recently, um, it, no one really knew that and we thought that they weren't toxic. But um, colleagues of Stephen Rowe, who put this paper out, previously put out another study in Nature, banishing that myth and showing that, in fact, lots of uh, goanas, different uh, lizards which are in that family that the Komodo dragons belong to, they're all toxic, uh, have toxic bites as well. So yes, maybe don't get too close to those lizard guys. And keep your fingers out of their mouths. <laughs> anyway. Thanks, Helen. Now, also this week, scientists have published a paper in Nature in which they They've looked at a long-standing question, which is, why is it that people who have Down syndrome don't get cancer as often as they should do? What I mean by that is that if you compare someone with Down syndrome with someone who hasn't got Downs of the same age, 
the person with Downs gets cancer only 10% as often as they ought to, compared with the normal person. This suggests that there's something protective about having an extra copy of chromosome number 21 and therefore the 231 genes that are on that chromosome. What are those genes doing and how do they protect against cancer? Because if we can find some interesting mechanism in there, that suggests you could use that same mechanism to treat people who don't have Downs but do have cancer. That was the question that was being asked by Sandra Ryan, who's a researcher at Harvard Medical School in America. And what her and her team did was to start with the premise, they pointed out that as well as not getting cancer, the other thing that Down syndrome people don't get is diabetic eye disease. Diabetics can get new blood vessels growing into their retina, which can cause blindness. But this doesn't seem to happen in Down syndrome patients. And so the researchers wondered whether the association between the two and the cancer might all be linked genetically, in that if you can't make very many new blood vessels very easily, perhaps the reason people with Downs don't get cancer is because they can't grow new blood vessels in their tumours very well, therefore the tumours don't get enough blood supply, therefore they don't grow very fast. So they set about trying to test this. They, first of all, homed in on a gene, which is one of those 231 genes on chromosome 21, and it's a gene called DSCR1. And this gene acts as a cellular off switch for another gene, which turns on the growth of blood vessels. So it does sort of fit. This is a gene called VEGF, VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. So to find out whether this story really fitted together, they took a mouse which had been made to have the rodent equivalent of Down syndrome. In other words, they'd added to the mouse extra copies of all of the genes that are duplicated in patients with Downs. And they then implanted into these mice tumours. And compared with mice that didn't have these extra genes, the tumours hardly grew at all. But obviously there are 230 genes there, so they don't know exactly which gene it was that was causing it. And to nail it down to this gene they were interested in, DSCR1, what they did was to then take the mice with Down syndrome and take away the extra copy just of that one gene, leaving all the other genes still present in an additional copy. And what then happened was that the tumours grew normally. And so what this suggests is that this gene, and they also found another related gene, are turning off the growth of blood vessels, both in the eyes and in other tissues that might become cancerous. And as a result, tumours don't grow very well. And this is very insightful because it suggests that we could, now they've got the workings of this molecular pathway at their fingertips and they can begin to unpick that pathway we could actually begin to see some new targets coming up where new treatments could be used and thrown at cancer to stop it and it's quite nice they've written at the end of their paper it's perhaps inspiring that the down syndrome population can provide us with new insights into mechanisms that regulate cancer growth and by so doing identifies potential targets for tumor prevention and therapy i guess it kind of brings up the whole question of testing for Down syndrome in the womb and all that kind of thing as well and what other things we learn from these people who unfortunately have this condition. Anyway, I'm going to stick with uh, the world of human uh, biology and medicine for my last story and talk about this uh, latest paper which is about our brains and whether or not they actually tell us how we behave and how social we are. Do you consider yourself to be a people person? Do you crave the company of others? Definitely. And you warm and sentimental, Chris, I know Definitely. you are. Definitely. Well, if you are then it's probably, so it could be something to do with the structure of your brain. Graham Murray led a team of researchers from Cambridge University and Oulu University in Finland, and they discovered that the greater concentration of tissues in certain parts of the brain, the more likely someone is to be highly sociable. Now, earlier studies have linked the same parts of the brain um, to the parts that process simple rewards, like uh, sweet, sugary tastes and sex as well, things that are very important for life and that we don't really have to question why we're after them. Anyway, publishing in the 
the Journal of Neuroscience, the European Journal of Neuroscience, Murray and his team recruited 41 male volunteers, shoved them in a brain scanner, in an MRI scanner, and then they asked them to fill out a questionnaire to find out aspects of their personality. They were asked questions like, I make uh, a warm personal connection with most people. Do you or do you not? And uh, I like to please other people as much as I can. And the results of that questionnaire give you something called the Social Reward Dependence Score. And the higher you score on that, the more social you are, really. And they found that people with higher scores tended to have a greater concentration of grey matter in both the orbitofrontal cortex, that's the outer strip of the brain above the eyes, and the ventral striatum, which is the deep suture across the centre of the brain. Um, And eating energy-rich sweet foods and sex also seem to be associated with those parts of the brain. And we can see how maybe this is showing us that those sort of rather um, basic, important uh, things that we need, sugar to keep us going, sex to hand on our genes, might have led to the evolution of these more complex emotions, sentimentality, affection for other people, which uh, on the initial looking, you might not think it's that important for you to be social, but it is, you know, there are reasons why we must get on and and, uh, like other people and, and get along. But perhaps that's where this is but really this is the first the first sign that there might be something going on here this is just a link that these guys have uh, shown but maybe it will come to shed some light on understanding why some people su- suffering from some conditions don't know how to uh, interact properly people with autism schizophrenia things like that maybe this will lead the way towards understanding um, when our sociality our socia- sociability goes wrong now, also in the news this week, researchers at the University of Chicago have identified a potential biological mechanism that can link cancer with depression. And we're joined by Dr. Leah Piter to tell us a bit about it. Hello, Leah. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So do tell us, what is the evidence then that people who get cancer get depression? Because obviously that's a pretty traumatic diagnosis to receive. Are you saying then that people get depressed before they get their diagnosis of having cancer? Well, basically what we know is that uh, patients with cancer have a higher likelihood of also developing depression at some point in their disease progression. So uh, whether that occurred before and is predisposing them to cancer or is due to the tumors themselves or, you know, other um, other aspects of having the disease, uh, we don't know. We were We were only studying right now whether the cancer itself can cause depression. How could a tumor trigger depression because a tumour can occur anywhere in the body, therefore at a remote site in the brain. So how could it trigger changes in brain activity? Sure. Well, what we hypothesized um, was that the tumours themselves can produce cytokines, which has been shown before. These are inflammatory chemicals that that drive the immune system. Right, exactly. And there is also a, a pile of research on how cytokines can access the brain specifically regions of the brain that um, are associated with depression and anxiety and emotional behaviors. Um, and they can, they can access the brain both humorally through the blood um, or neurally through um, the vagus nerve. So what did you actually do to get to the bottom of how cancer might be able to do that? So first of all, we're using a, uh, an animal species, a rat, in order to isolate just the physiological impact of having a tumor from the psychological impact of having the disease. Um, we induced tumors in rats and had controls and then looked at their depressive and anxiety-like behavior along with some physiological measures of the cytokines and the stress um, access. So you give rats a cancer. Can you show that when they get the cancer, they do develop a sort of depressive or anxious-like syndrome consistent with having or or contemporaneously with having the tumor. Exactly, yes. That's what we did. 
Um, basically, you use standard behavioral tests um, in these rats that are, have been used to develop uh, pharmaceuticals like antidepressants. And um, you have control animals, and we measured these types of behaviors and made sure that they only developed following um, the uh, presence of a tumor. And once you'd confirmed that the rats do seem to get depressed when they get a cancer, how did you then find out what was going on to make them feel like that? Well, we had we had two candidates. One were the cytokines that um, we have some information about associated with depression, and the other was via the hormone axis that regulates, you know, stress responses. And so we were able to measure cytokines in the tumors themselves, in the blood, as well as the brain in animals with and without tumors. And we also measured um, one of the stress hormones in response to a stressor and found that cytokines were increased in the brain if you had a tumor and your um, hormone response to a stressor was dampened if you had a tumor relative to controls. So the cancer is definitely inducing biochemical changes in the brain that might trigger depressive symptoms. We can treat depression, though. Why is it important to to have identified this problem, and how can it help us to make people who have cancer have a better outcome? Right. So I think one of of the things we were keying in on is that a lot of chemotherapies are cytokine-based, and so if you're having a patient that is displaying depression along with a cancer, you might try to switch the chemotherapies. Um, but it's also important because cancer patients that are de- depressed are less likely to stick to their um, you know, medical program and are more likely to succumb to the disease. So not only treating the cancer, but also the depression is, is important for their well-being. Thank you very much, Leah. Thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Leah Piter, who is at the University of Chicago. She and her colleagues have published a paper in this week's edition of the journal PNAS in which they explain how things like cancers can change the behaviour and particularly to cause behaviours like depression, which, as she just explained, can have a major impact on how well someone does in terms of their therapy and their long-term prognosis. And speaking of references, you can also follow up on the references to all of the stories that we talk about here on The Naked Scientist via our website at thenakedscientist.com. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now we join Sarah Castor-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1919 the solar eclipse that proved Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity to be correct. Einstein had published his theory in 1916 But because of the First World War, no attempts were made to test the theory until the English physicist Arthur Eddington and his colleagues travelled to observe the total solar eclipse of May 29th from Principe, off West Africa, and from northern Brazil. Before Einstein, Newton's theory of gravitation, put forward in his Principia Mathematica, published in the mid-17th century, had been the way to describe how gravity works. However, it could not account for what caused gravity and the source of the force. Newton himself was uncomfortable with how to explain how gravity seemed to act at a distance through a vacuum. Einstein's theory of general relativity gives rise to a geometric theory of gravitation. This basically says that gravity doesn't make things move, it is just a consequence of the shape of space-time. The best way to imagine this is the common analogy of a rubber sheet – If you and some friends stretch it out so it's flat, then roll a ball from one side to the other, 
the ball will go straight across. But if you then put a big heavy ball in the middle of the sheet, it'll cause a big dent in it. This is kind of like what happens to space-time around a huge object like our sun. It changes shape. If you then roll the same small ball as before across the rubber sheet, it won't just roll straight across, because the big ball in the middle has created a dip, and the path of the small ball will change. It may bend or roll right round the dip and come back towards you, or it may stay rolling around the big heavy ball. This is what gravity does. The dip in the sheet caused by the big ball is affecting the path of other objects put on the sheet, just like gravity in the real world will affect the movement of objects and light coming close to a massive object like a star. The idea that light travelling towards us from distant stars would be bent by the gravitational pull of large objects like the Sun was suggested before the 1916 paper and could be predicted by combining Newton's theory of gravity with Einstein's earlier theory on special relativity. Using the now famous equation E equals mc squared to calculate a mass for the light energy coming from a distant star, Newtonian gravitation predicts that the light will be bent by the sun's gravity, causing the perceived position of that star in the sky to shift. However, general relativity predicts a displacement of twice that predicted by Newtonian gravitation, and the only way to prove who was right was through observation. The only time that stars could be observed when their position in the sky was close to the sun was during an eclipse, or the sun's brightness would prevent photographs of the stars from being taken. This is what led to the expeditions made by Eddington and his colleagues in 1919. On the day of the eclipse, it was cloudy in Principe. Eddington and his assistant worried that they would not get the photographs they needed. Fortunately for the future of physics, the clouds broke for long enough. Back in England... They compared the photographs of the Hyades star field taken during the eclipse to photographic plates of the same star field when the sun was out of the way. The difference in position of the stars was just as general relativity predicted, twice that predicted by Newtonian gravitation. Throughout the 20th century, further evidence to support Einstein's general relativity theory has built up. The theory predicted the existence of black holes, gravitational redshift and gravitational time dilation, and the results of tests have all fitted with the theory's predictions. General relativity is still the way we describe gravity in modern physics, although there are problems when it comes to quantum physics, the physics of the particles that make up atoms, in that the predictions of relativity do not hold on this tiny scale. Reconciling these two areas would lead to the physicist's dream of the so-called theory of everything. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how photographs of a solar eclipse allowed scientists to confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity this week in 1919. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry, along with our guest, Dr Leah Piter. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.